todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today I'm talking to a longtime member of the shock rock, heavy metal, comic book loving, D&D playing art collective, Guar, Michael Bishop. Mike is an academic and a PhD, but music fans know him as Guar's bassist, Beefcake the Mighty, and lead singer, Blothar the Berserker. His Grammy-winning band has been pushing buttons and spewing gore since the 80s, and they are still going strong with the release of a brand new documentary film, This Is Guar. Welcome to the show, right. Mike. All right. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I watched the documentary, This is Guar, and I was fascinated by so much of it. But aside from the fun bits, there's also real talk about the difficulties and tragedies that you've all endured. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this project came about and how you all worked with the director for to paint such a full picture in just under two hours? I mean... Getting that picture painted was uh, that was 100 percent Scott. The, he the the film the director he did a really good job with uh, identifying a narrative that sort of emerged out of the interviews and then you know really honing in on that and uh, making sure that we you know that that just that that the movie tells that story that sort of came out of the interviews. Um, and I think we chose really well when we chose Scott because we, we had been offered a lot of, uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to do documentaries about Guar and everybody kind of wanted to focus on the death of Dave and Corey, who were two members that, that we had. And, uh, and Scott was the only one who recognized, like, that's not really the story we want to tell that, that, you know, the it was more about the band continuing on and about the commitment and sort of uh, like you said, that, that the commitment to one another and then the, the effort that it takes for, you know, just for, for the band to put on shows and, and to keep going and stuff like that. Uh, you know, he, he was the only one who really focused on that. 
uh, in our conversations. And that's why we went with him. And he just did a really good job of, uh, you know, honing in on it. Uh, I, th- I think, and he was, he's just a wonderful guy. He's really helpful and, you know, did a lot of filming and, and, and was very, very useful to have uh, around us when he was making the documentary. So it was nice. Yeah, it really is well-rounded. It's not a puff piece, but then again, it's not all just about the downsides. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he did, you know, probably the only thing that we really, that, that when you when you only have that amount of time, I mean, Guar's a band that's been together for, you know, damn close to 40 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, you know, you're trying to, so there's a lot of people involved, you know, and plus Guar, there's never been like, you know, just a rock band with, you know, four or five members. I mean, there's so many people that have come in and out of it. And uh, so probably the only thing that I wish were different is that we we could have included every single one of those people, you know, because they all had like such an important part in war. But there are certain people like Scott Crawl, who was there from the beginning, that's not in it, Dave Muscle, uh, who was around from the beginning that's uh, not in it. Um, but, you know, I mean, they he, he just went with this narrative and, and that, you know, what he wanted to tell. So, uh, yeah, I think streamlining it for the viewer who may not be very familiar with Guar, it does a good job of that. And then you also yeah. list all the band members at the end. So they are exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you picked up on that. That was our, our condition. We were like, we have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've embodied two different characters in Guar. Uh, what were the pros and cons of each? And what was it like coming back after being away for several years? Well, uh, Beefcake the Mighty was a lot of fun to do because he was very much an extension in the way that Odorous was an extension of, of Dave Brocky. Beefcake was sort of an extension of me. He was a uh, especially at the time, he was like a. We based him on a Roman uh, character, like a sort of. Uh, I always thought of him as a, a pedantic, um, you know, sort of <laughs> vaguely dissipated sort of uh, uh, character, something like uh, Caligula. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> That's really stepping into some shoes there or sandals, in the case. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, some sandals. <laughs> yeah. So we did, you know, that, that's that's what how we thought of, of Beefcake and uh, and how he was evolved. This is just this like, you know, I don't know, omnisexual, like, oh, like just, you know, I don't even know how what, what, what would we describe like a, just a, addicted to pleasure sort of all a hedonist. Um, Yes, a hedonist. Yes, and then um, for uh, for uh, Blothar, <clears throat> we had to. We really, you know, I mean, it was a, the first time we'd like come up with like a mainline character for a. Uh, I mean, they, we Pustulus was sort of a an adaptation of the Maximus clan. So uh, for uh, for for Blothar. What we wanted to do was uh, get get together, uh, kind of something like the old school war, the old, uh, and the original idea for him was a biker, um, b- a biker Viking. Mm-hmm. But okay, 
yeah, but it being Guar, I mean, like, you know, we wanted it to have uh, uh, everything, you know, things are usually <laughs> some sort of meaning emerges. Like one of the ways that Guar makes meaning is almost by accident, right? But it's like, well, this is kind of perfect, you know, like Lothar was uh, the old Viking, um, you know, like Beowulf, who like, you know, what's he, he's like, he's in his late 40s and they call him back to fight Grindel's mother you know <laughs> um so <laughs> I had sung a lot of songs in war and written a lot of songs in war uh previously um and and just did a lot of singing in general so what they did was they they suggested that you know hey come on back and do this barbecue which was an event that was already on the books when Dave died and mm. um and, you know, when, when they first asked me, I had assumed that I would sing the old songs that I used to sing in the band. Um, but that's not how it went. They wanted me to sing all of the stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and so I did it and just discovered that I was able to, able to do it, able to grab a hold of the stuff that I could hear in Dave's voice and try to, you know, convey out of those performances um and it was great it was uh, it you know it worked so we just kept going with it yeah it was very well received um in in my next uh rock and roll nightmares book i have a whole chapter on the satanic panic of the 80s and how unfairly maligned music especially metal was and you do explore this in the documentary um can you give our listeners an idea of what they'll see in this is guar about that period in history well I'm glad that to some degree the satanic panic is back, except for now it's even more manic. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's gotten crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was a weird, a weird time. Like the, you know, the kid who put a shotgun in his mouth listening to Judas Priest and then yeah. blew his lower jaw off and just Rob Halford in courts sitting there like, listening to these records i mean it, it was so profoundly stupid man <laughs> it was a real circus for sure and, and guar <laughs> also got caught in in the crossfire didn't it i mean uh, you getting arrested bit. and yes yes right right um i i wouldn't chalk that up to well i guess that was more like like sort of after the satanic panic you had these weird uh uh or maybe it like maybe as part of it uh, just these fears about youth culture um, that were actually coming out of like, you know, I mean, Democrats, right? Like it was Tipper Gore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the case where, you know, where, where we were arrested, I mean, that was uh, uh, not Strom Thurmond, but what's his name is other, uh, other big sort of uh, major uh North Carolina old school machine politician um, Jesse Helms, mm. mm -hmm. who uh, you know, yeah, who uh, you know, basically ran Charlotte. Uh, he was part of the political machine down there, and uh, you know, so when we were doing what we did on stage, uh, and also along, we were more like along the lines of when they started going after two live crew and it was about obscenity less than it was sort of Satanism, right? Like uh, um, people were afraid that war was uh, 
uh, and and we were certainly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you weren't laying low by any means. <laughs> we still do, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, we didn't. You know, we we we. Although I think overall we got a pass. You know, from uh, uh, that other other acts didn't get like Two Live Crew really suffered a lot uh, during that time period. Right. Um, you know, but I mean, yeah, it was it was an interesting an interesting time because it was it was also just very difficult to see. I mean, with War it was obvious. It's like, oh, okay, this is about obscenity and about uh, you know uh, pornography, whatever. But you know, with other acts, I mean, the accusations of Satanism is just so arcane and difficult to really understand and. Uh, you know, and it's weird though. I mean, like if you look at the music, if you look at heavy metal, I mean, there certainly is a connection between uh, dark imagery um, and dark spiritual imagery that that is there. I mean, it's there, but in the case of metal, it's, it was always to me more about like this sort of grasping for some kind of an alien, you know, an alienation. Um, uh, and, and in the case of like early metal, really just sort of grafting that onto uh, onto black music. Right. Like so, you know, I mean, Black Sabbath really just sort of took the blues and these kind of elements of hokum and things like that and, and really amplified it into, you know, a horror movie. Um, so, I mean, there there are references to uh, to that kind of dark spirituality, but never in a sense of like somebody worshiping <laughs> right well and yeah, committing I mean, ritual acts of sacrifice <laughs> yeah i mean well the 60s um had the crazy world of arthur brown and the 70s spawned kiss and alice cooper but to me it seems like guar may not have caught on as well at as it did if it weren't for the timing of being the 80s if it wasn't just so and yet you guys have endured so um what keeps you inspired into the present day with guar well i think that uh you know now i mean the, the world war we've always viewed war as a kind of uh commentary on modernity you know and i think that we've offered a pretty pretty good critique of it uh, the whole time that we've been doing this um and you know th there's still stuff to say right there's mm -hmm. there are still things that and the world keeps changing in ways that are less and less desirable <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot to say you know and uh and and it's changed. I mean, just the the, the economics of, of rock music has changed um, in ways that kind of allow a band uh, that has our level of experience and age to uh, continue moving. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a it's a combination of factors that that allow the band to keep going, but. The main one really is just that we want to keep doing it. You know, we want to keep making art and being out there and and uh, doing what we do. Yeah, well, you're bound to garner some new fans with This Is Guar, which is out Friday on VOD, digital, DVD, and Blu-ray. You are so slick with that. <laughs> Leading right into the plug. Thank you so much. All right, you take care. 
All right, you too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I'm closing the show with an excerpt from the upcoming Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 2, which is out within a few weeks. This is from the chapter Stage Fright. Having wild animals on stage is usually not the best idea. Just ask Siegfried and Roy, or the suddenly headless bat tossed up to Ozzy Osbourne during a 1982 show in Des Moines, Iowa. Alice Cooper has had several boa constrictors on tour with him over the years, and there have been a few mishaps, including escapes and one snake coming down with a bout of diarrhea in front of a crowd of thousands that included Alice's VIP guests Johnny Rotten and Rob Zombie. Those animal antics pale in comparison to ZZ Top's Worldwide Texas Tour, which started in 1976 and concluded the following year. The idea was to take Texas to the people, which the trio did with a massive 35-ton Lone Star State-shaped stage, full-sized windmills, live cacti, and countless other props. Sharing the spotlight with that little old band from Texas was an indigenous animal menagerie, including buffalo, longhorn steer, a javelina pig, rattlesnakes, tarantulas, and vultures. What could possibly go wrong? Or as drummer Frank Beard recalled, Some idiot, I can't remember which one of us it was, said, hey, let's take a buffalo on tour. And it went on from there. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time. <laughs>